Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're looking at the story behind Unquiet Graves, the documentary. How is it that a group of police officers can plant a bomb in Northern Ireland, knowing that they are at that time under surveillance, without any fear of being caught or apprehended or punished in any way? That is a question posed in the documentary Unquiet Graves, which, although released in early 2019, was seen by many people for the first time in recent weeks when RTE aired it. That question wasn't from a bereaved family member, an activist or an advocate. It was asked by Steve Morris, a former Scotland Yard detective and senior investigator with the Historical Inquiries team in Northern Ireland. For years, he was probing the activities of the Glenan gang with specific focus on collusion between its members, the RUC and the UDR. That's the Ulster Defence Regiment of the British Army. It is thought that the gang are responsible for about 120 killings in what has become known as the Murder Triangle of South Armagh and Tyrone. Unquiet Graves features detectives, family members, journalists, lawyers and whistleblowers all fighting for justice for decades. Here's a quick trailer for those who haven't seen it yet. The plan that was decided on was to shoot up a school in Belix. So, when you say shoot up a school, do you mean kill the primary school children in the school? Children, teachers, yes. And they knew that bomb was there for days. So, the state committed the murder of Eddie and that's it. Murdered. And place are putting our chairs to bed. As I said, we're doing this differently today. So rather than go through every single detail of the story, I'll direct you to the documentary itself, which is on the RT player and will be for the next three or four weeks. Instead, we're sitting down with the film's director and producer, Sean Murray, to look at the story, but also the processes of the filmmaking and what has happened in the year since its release. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Um, I will start with just a little bit of the detail to bring uh, people up to speed who might not um, know who the, the Glenan gang are. Can you just tell us a little bit about um, what I've described there as their connections to the British Army, the RUC and, and Loyalist paramilitaries? Well, the Glenan gang was uh, a gang that comprised membership of, of those that were, were, were members of the British Army, uh, the RUC, the police force, and also the Ulster Volunteer Force, a a proxy uh, loyalist death squad, a uh, loyalist paramilitary group that were involved in, in, in many killings of, of uh, innocent Catholics in the north. Tell us a little bit more about their victims. Obviously, we know that there's about 120 of them. Who were they targeting? Well, you know, according to many years of research, it became uh, apparent that the, the, the gang uh, in reflection were attacking those that were doing well. So we, we had GA members uh, that were attacked, those that, that were doing well in businesses, farmers, shopkeepers, etc. Moderate nationalists targeting SDLP members. Uh, their, their, their targets were of a, of a moderate nature. They, they, they didn't really target uh, Republicans for that matter. As a matter of fact, there was only one Republican that was killed by the Glenon gang, and that was John Francis Green. So here we had a gang which... Uh, through through policy was was attacking uh, moderate niceness within the community uh, and presumably to to force those uh, moderate niceness to remove possible support for the IRA. Yeah, what was the you say policy? What was the thinking behind it, and how I guess formed was that policy? How official was it? 
Well, the, the, the thing with collusion is we, 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 we can't pinpoint exactly where it went to on the top, but we know from many different sources that, 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 that uh, many, many leading figures within the British Army and the IUC, uh, particularly within special grants, run these uh, particular agents. We also know that the, there were two ways of controlling these kinds of agents. We had the, the RUC special grants, but you also had British military intelligence. And sometimes these, these, uh, both these organizations didn't, didn't get on. So we had instances where these agents were trying to actually steal these agents from one another's, uh, you know, for sources, etc. So what, what we had was uh, with the Glen Ann gang, we had a number of agents who were both uh, RUC special branch agents and British military intelligence, uh, and they were being run effectively to target these moderate canonizers to frighten people within these uh, rural communities. And of course, we've seen in the biggest attack, uh, which which went further uh, afield from the murder triangle, was the Dublin Manhattan bombings uh, and. and in 1974, of course, you know. And and that was also thought to be the work of the Glenan gang. That's correct, yeah. The definition of collusion is given in the film as the legal cooperation with, toleration of, cooperation between members of the security forces and paramilitary groups at an either individual or structural level. It's a really succinct uh, definition of collusion, which sometimes can feel a bit nebulous because that's the whole point. But that's the, the kind of legalese. But you have in the film so many examples of when it physically manifests itself in violence. Tell us about the experience of one victim who saw the police boots on the men who had shot him. Yeah, well, if we, if we take the, the, the rock bar, for example, that was a, an operation where all, all those that attacked the rock bar, and thankfully there was no one killed in the rock bar, but the reason why I wanted to present the, the, the rock bar within the film was because it was very, very significant that all those that attacked that bar and tried to wipe out all those within the bar were members of the RUC, some even on duty as it occurred. So we had someone who was who was shot outside the bar, thankfully, thankfully survived. And when he was lying injured, he seen the same boots that had came back by uh, the same boots that were worn by the uh, the attempted murderers uh, had come to 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 survey what had happened in the bar afterwards. So the, the same people had reappeared. Uh, the RUC had reappeared after the, the the bar was attacked. So this this is what we were we were dealing with in, in in small rural communities. So, and these people, you know, if if who who could these people uh, go to? Who could they look up to when the very people that were there to protect them were involved in trying to kill them? The 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 pub is a, a big feature of, of this, um, and obviously you you focused a lot on the attacks in the pubs. Was there any particular reason that they were always that they were often the targets? Um, is it to do with that um, mode of operation that it was to try and target people who were doing modestly well, or where did the pub fit into this narrative? Well, it's just the pub fitted in simply because if you're trying to kill as many people uh, at the one time, of course, a pub is where a lot of people would have gathered. So, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple. That's that's a reason why pubs were attacked. Anywhere that could have drawn uh, a large number of people was attacked. And, and, and obviously pubs at night was, was, was one of those targets. Sean, in the documentary, we meet John Weir. He's an ex-RUC man, part of the Glenan gang. Um, he's turned into a whistleblower who has revealed a lot of the details about what the Glenan gang did and also what they had planned to do. And one of the most shocking things that we hear from him is that there was a plot to kill children in a Catholic primary school in Northern Ireland. Can you tell us more about that plan? 
Yeah, well, well, well John Weir wasn't the only uh, ex-IUC man to, to make the case of, of what uh, what was going to, to occur at the Catholic Primary School. This was also uh, detailed by another IUC uh, reservist called William McCaughey, who served time, uh, who's actually jailed along with John Weir for an attack uh, on, on a, uh, an innocent Catholic called William Strathairn. So both both those were corroborated. Uh, well, sorry, John Weir's testimony, because Billy McCaughey had already died, John Weir's uh, testimony was corroborated by the HET. So what, what, we, what we, we have uh, in, in the, the unionist reaction to after the film is that any, nothing can be unpicked within the film and on quack graves. So what they have attempted to do is try to focus on the integrity of John Weir and his testimonies. But anything that John Weir says within Unquiet Graves is corroborated by uh, the historical inquiries team, which was set up uh, by the British government. So what uh, they the, 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 the attempted to do was to go into a Catholic school uh, and at the same time actually a nun's convent in, in Newry and just to kill as many children and their teachers as possible. They wanted to do something that would be so catastrophic that would lead to uh, a civil war. And of course, there were those hawks within British military intelligence that wanted a hand, uh, gloves off approach to, to the IRN that suited that, that, that way of thinking. And the UVF init- eventually put a stop to it. That's how kind of outrageous the plan was that even members of the UVF didn't want it. Well, of course, if, if, you, if you think of, of, of uh, paramilitary groups and those that lead those types of paramilitary groups, I think they're happy at a certain level to do their bidding for the British government. Uh, but when it comes to the case that you're beginning to uh, attack primary school children and their teachers, uh, and that can be reversed. I mean, that, that once you get, get into that kind of business, and attacks like that could be reversed on their own children, uh, and there are areas, I think, that, that, that they realise the, the, the bigger picture here, and that uh, something that they just couldn't go through with, you know. Was the thinking behind this that if you forced moderates to pick a side, then you would have a quicker, but obviously more brutal end to the troubles. That, that was the thing behind it for sure. Yeah, we, we've seen this uh, in, in other uh, areas where in other colonial projects where the British had been. And of course, other uh, other phases and other conflicts had, had learned from that type of thing. And we've seen it in, in the Iraq war with the conflict between the Shia and uh, the Sunni, of course, also. Yeah, that's what's something I wanted to bring up with you, because I think um, as, as an Irish people, we haven't obviously had a reckoning or dealing dealt with this fully ourselves. But what the British did to us versus what the British did to other countries doesn't often feel the same to us. Or we don't talk about it in the same way as we talk about how um, the British army treated uh, other countries. But in this film, you get a sense of the MO was the same. The counterinsurgency plans were the same. Yeah, of course, and, and that's that's a tragedy with 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 with, uh, with how we think in, in Ireland. I mean, apathy to a certain degree has been shaped through the manipulation of public opinion. People were only fed a one-dimensional narrative about what was happening in the north through RTE, and those uh, those media outlets that that thought the same way as, as the government. So this this apathy was built over many years. So I mean, I always remember growing up and and and, and whenever. We were on holidays in the south, and we, we visited. People just didn't want to know. I mean, they used to call it the Black North. We don't know what's going on there. We don't want to hear what's going on there. It has nothing to do with us. And it always, it always confused me as a child growing up that there was a, this apathy because 
as an Irish person uh, in the north of Ireland, I just couldn't understand that a fellow Irish person could think like that, you know. And it's, it's you know, the, the marginalised voices, if we look at those that were affected by British state terrorism, whether it's by the British Army or those who were murdered by the RUC or their proxy death squads, they, they, they were never afforded the same coverage as those that were affected by the IRA campaign. And that was, of course, was exacerbated by Section 31 and censorship. So we had a community that was vilified through censorship also. I mean, if, if we look at how one side of the community was censored, but yet the other, if we, if we look at how the, the, the role of the British government was promoted in, in many cases uh, uh, during the conflict, it's, it's quite hard to get your head around. And I think that's the reason why we've seen such a, a, a massive uh, public reaction to Unquad Graves being shown. Because people are just so surprised, they're so they're so shocked by what uh, the images that they that they have seen within Unquiet Graves, you know. That apathy that you mentioned there is that something that still exists, or because of this reaction, is it something that you think that we can eventually snap ourselves out of? No, I, th- I think we can, but I mean, if, if we look at the the media reaction to Unquiet Graves. Uh, it's been deafening. If we look at the the week before, or I think it was a fortnight before, sorry, that the Martin McGuinness film was shown, and we'd seen the the a combined uh, reaction by the media outlets uh, on, on on that film being shown, and and to a certain degree, figures like Martin McGuinness have been uh, we, to a certain degree the media have created villains out of people like Martin McGuinness. But if we look at what happened in the aftermath of Unquiet Graves, the public reaction, but yet we have media silence to what had been that the, the people had seen on their TV screens in Unquiet Graves. So I think that media silence has raised a lot of questions about the, the, the public and, and high, high public opinion has been shaped for many years in, in, uh, by the Irish press. Do you mean media, because obviously it was shown by RTA, do you mean the news media outside of that um, not pursuing this these particular stories or coverage of the documentary itself or just m- more coverage of what happened through the Troubles or what continues to happen in Northern Ireland? I, 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 I'm going to be honest, I'm going to say, though the instances were those that have been affected by state violence. There's never much conversation about it. Um, it perplexes me that we haven't seen a bigger reaction in the media to the issues that were there uh, in Unquiet Graves. I mean, the media silence has been just, it's, 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 it perplexes me, it really does. Do you think it's of the same nature of what you were feeling when you were a little boy, feeling that Irish person doesn't care about what's happening to me or my, my family up the north? Is it, is it the same feeling that you get? For, for sure, yeah, for sure. But I, but I think it, you know, this isn't a criticism of the public. It's a criticism of, of a culture that has been shaped for many, many years. But I think that with the proliferation of digital and social media now, people begin uh, to ask questions for themselves, you know, and, and I think that that is, is slowly changing. And I think the media are going to have to come behind that because it's just, it's, it's unstoppable. You've probably answered uh, this question in uh, your last couple of minutes there, but what prompted you to start work on this documentary specifically? Well, for me, the, the, the Glen Ann series of kill, killings, I wanted to to, uh, to create an overarching story on collusion. I know there were many instances of collusion, but the, the Glen Ann series of killings for me was something that was uh, quite quite big. Uh, and I wanted to give a story that many, many people who, who had been affected by state violence could relate to. Uh, the sheer scale of it and the killings alone, uh, but also those that were involved. You, you, 
or you see special grants. You had uh, the security, the security secret service, the British military intelligence, UVF, RUC, British Army. I thought fundamentally, I'm a storyteller, but here's a story that could be internationalized. It's a story that could have international appeal, and it could also start the healing process for all those that were affected by state violence. Throughout the documentary, you have obviously talked to a lot of victims and a lot of victims' families. You're asking them to speak about the most traumatic occasions of their lives. Many of them are still physically traumatized. I'm thinking there of Margaret Campbell, one of the women. Um, the conversation you had with her is probably the one that stuck with me the most. She is talking about how her husband was gunned down in front of her at their home and how badly she was treated by the RUC afterwards. She, as I said, is physically shaken. She looks like she's traumatized completely still all of these decades later. We know that when there's a fight for justice, often the people who have had those injustices done onto them are the ones who have to do the heavy lifting um, for that justice to happen. Was it hard to get those people on camera or what was the process about getting them to share their story in the way they did? Well, I, I would never have, have become involved in a film like this if if I didn't have the trust of the families for a start. But that 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 process begins with the advocacy, the advocacy groups such as Justice for the Forgotten uh, in Dublin and the Panfilugan Centre. So these these are the people who have done the groundwork before I came in afterwards. And of course, uh, fundamentally, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a journalist, so I don't ask leading questions. I've also had uh, four members of my extended family killed by the British state also. So there's, there's, there's a connection there. Uh, and, and once I speak to people, it's, it's not me just going in with a, a large crew and, and conducting these interviews. There, there are many weeks of me speaking to family members beforehand. And I have to, I have, to have the trust of those families before I can, can ever uh, get an interview on the scale of Margaret Campbell's. I mean, it's probably one of the most, I might, as long as I live, I might never uh, conduct an interview like that again. It's just something that's so, so powerful and so raw. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about it. Was it um, a case of that was the one conversation you had or was there a process around um, shooting that particular story? Just to catch listeners up a little bit, um, Her uh, there was a shooting at, at her home. Her, her husband was shot and then she was a few weeks later brought to... Belfast for an uh, identity queue where she was asked to put her hand on the man who she had seen shoot her husband physically told to, to calm down and put her hand on, on his body. Um, she was obviously re-traumatized multiple times and she was telling you that that story. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about the process of doing that interview. Yeah, well, the, the, the process began with with conversations with the Pat Lucan Centre many, many weeks beforehand. And even before I had brought the first camera or spoke to the first family member. I collectively spoke to all family members in Ben Burb and discussed what I, what I had intended to do with the film. So we are here, we had a massive gathering of families before I conducted even one interview. Uh, and, and I impressed upon them what I had hoped to do, uh, not only with filming, uh, but how I intended to disseminate the film. And how it wasn't just about getting the film out there, it was about the cathartic process of family members getting involved in the filmmaking and, and having some uh, some ownership over their own stories uh, and creating together a historical archive of what of what had happened to to their family members and telling them that you know once and for all 
we would never forget about what happened to their family members. And they were now part of the process of cementing that legacy. Did they get that cathartic sense after doing the interviews or, or were you aware of that from any of them? Yeah, well, I think it, it really hit me when, when we, the first screening of Unquack Graves was a private screening to the family members. And that was in, in, in a, a hotel in County Tyrone. So the doors were closed. It was only for family members alone. And I was very, very nervous about Margaret Campbell in particular, all the family members, but, but, but Margaret Campbell, because I had felt that, you know, we could possibly re- be re-traumatizing family members with the, the screening of the film. But of course, the Pat Finucane Centre had put mechanisms in place. We had a safe room for family members and there were uh, counselling, uh, counsellors, et cetera, there. So we, we had we had all those th- those mechanisms in place. But I stood uh, nervously at the back and, and watched Margaret uh, Campbell. And, and as the, the film closed, Margaret Campbell made her, her way back up the, 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 the large hall to me. And, and give me a big hug and said, you know, that, that's, that's how it was. That's exactly how it was. And what was worse for me, she said, than seeing him uh, being killed at the doorstep was what the RUC had done to me afterwards. And that, for me, I had a sense of that we had done something very, very right with the film and that the film was going to do a real justice to, to, to those that uh, participated, you know. Yeah, it's an outstanding few few moments of of film, and from a viewer point of view, seeing someone like her um, describe her experiences, it's something I had to rewind a couple of times uh, on my second viewing of the film just to to hear exactly what she was saying. There was so much to unpack in her experiences that she was she was giving us. One of the other questions about the processes I wanted to ask you is that you open the documentary with shots of a of a GA game of a football game between uh Dublin and Derry it, it's almost jarring then when it when you realize what you'll be watching for the next hour and 15 minutes as a as the producer and director what was why did you want to start there I wanted to give a sense of how innocent these people were that were being attacked by the Glen Allen gang and and how how important is the the uh, the all Ireland's to to us as, as, as Irish men and women. And it was really to open uh, with, with uh, a scene that could, could grip the audience right from the beginning. And, and I think to, to recreate that was, was, uh, was, was something that I, that I intended to do. And of course, I wanted to bring that arc right around. Uh, and we had, of course, the, the, the Seamus Heaney poem at the end where, where Heaney discusses uh, memories of his cousin who, of course, was, was killed in that attack that we had opened the film with. Which is two men returning from, from a semi-final and uh, shot on the roadside by the gang. That's correct, yeah. When the film then was out in the world, uh, we touched on it a little bit before, but let's dive into it a bit more. The reaction um, from the establishment, both sides of the border, you've talked about um, kind of that muted reaction from the media. What about the political reaction as well? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's all. The, the silence has also been deafening. Uh, uh, why, with with the issues that 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 have been so 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 hurtful to family members, issues that that could easily, I mean, what 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 we need to do is discuss these issues for family members. That's part of the cathartic process because, in the absence of of proper mechanisms that deal with these issues through the criminal justice system, all these family members have are are, are filmmakers to tell their stories and at least cement the legacy of, of, of their loved ones. 
and, and, and for to hear the silence of those that are in power after we see this kind of public reaction to the film is it's an insult. For me, it's an insult. What, what does it take for a politician to comment on, 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 on something that is obviously so, uh, so important to these family members, particularly, particularly when we have those uh, family members of the Dublin Manhattan bombings who, who, who haven't received that justice yet? Well, the Irish government could be doing more to pressure the British government about what happened, what had happened uh, to to the those that were affected by the Dublin Manhattan bombings. Yeah, just uh, to run through uh, what has happened to the members of the Glenan gang who are mostly able to be named. I think uh, you've said most of the members have have been named at, at some stage or or other. What has happened to them with the, either within the criminal justice system or within their own careers? Obviously, a lot of them were officers in, in the RUC or the army. Yeah, well, the, of course, we, we name a, a number of, of, of uh, RUC men and UDR men that were uh, jailed uh, for offences uh, and relating to the Glen Ann gang. But when we look at this, the scale of killings, over 120 plus killings, the detection rate is 4.4%. It's roughly around 4.4%. I mean, what police force... Uh, anywhere in the world would be proud of a detection uh, uh, and a rate of 4.4%. It just, it just, it's baffling. Uh, and, and that was one of the, the things that had been uh, that had been said in the union as backlash to the film, that a number of these killers were jailed. A number of these, kill, a number of these killers could have been jailed a lot, a lot quicker uh, than, than waiting six to eight years in many cases. And they were jailed through other instances that they were involved in. And I think when, when some of these people were jailed, it was time, and John Weir had also told me this, and it was the same for his case, uh, the policy in many cases like this is, is throw a few cups of bad apples to the wolves so that we don't get this over overarching sense of uh, British uh, collusion. And this is what happened in many cases. And we see it with loyalist paramilitaries also, that once they're, they're, they're effective and are used for a number of years, then just throw them to the wolves. And there, there and you have the bad apple theory. Yeah, the bad apple theory comes up a lot. Um, how do you make sure that that theory doesn't become louder than your film? Or is that something that you were thinking about when you were uh, going into making it, that people will just pass it off as a one-sided narrative? Or, you know, as you said, the back lies will start. Um, well, we did jail people. Or you can't blame the whole system for, for a few people who will go bad. Well, we, we often see that uh, in dealing with, with, with these things, particularly through the media, that we, we have this false symmetric alignment of arguments, you know, that, that always ensures a broadcast of impartiality, but it rarely advances to the truth in many cases. So I, I don't have that. I, I don't need to be scrutinized like that. First and foremost, I'm not a journalist. I'm a filmmaker. And this is how I see the story. And this is a story that I see through the evidence, uh, through the documents, and through, most importantly, the, the, the testimonies, eyewitness testimonies of those that spoke in the film. That's what's important for me. Uh, and when we have British, the British government's own documents in the film, we have a, a, a police officer from England who was involved in the historical inquiries team that was set up by the British government. Uh, then it all fits together. And if we question the integrity of John Weir, who whose evidence could be corroborated by the HCT. And that's the only argument that you have. That's the only rebuff that you have against on quack raids. And I'm happy enough with that. I've, I've, I've absolutely no, no problem in, in, in accepting that. But the thing is, 
This is many years of research, up to 20 years of research before we even brought a camera out. And also it is, it's, it's underpinned by scholarly research, four years of research and a PhD project, which Unquiet Graves was part of. So I, uh, my, my role in this film wasn't just coming from a filmmaker's perspective, it was also coming from an academic perspective. And it's underpinned by that many years of, of research within academia also. So if, if there's those that want to criticize Unquiet Graves, they can come to me and we can discuss the issues that are in the film. But what I won't do is I won't engage, like I've seen over this last week, with tabloid trash from many quarters within the unionist uh, uh, media. I won't, dis I won't discuss that. If you want to discuss any of the issues within the film, I'm always here for that, but not to discuss uh, any of the, the, the tabloid disinformation that has been put out there within the last week. With that um, reaction and with what you were saying earlier about um, Ortiz coverage and the general media coverage um, of these issues, were you surprised that Ortiz wanted to air this? Do you know something I was? And, and I have to say, Ortiz have received, uh, because the film was meant to go out last year and there were some issues, Ortiz got a bit of a batter from the, the public over social media. And, and I have to say, there 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 RT have done a lot of work within that last year to have this film heard. So I, I can't be uh, I can't criticize RT in that matter uh, because I know that many people done a lot of uh, hard lifting for for, for it to be be screened last week. And I think, and I don't say this lately. I think it was something historical last week when we'd seen uh, Unquiet Graves screened. I mean, on on quiet for for, for Unquiet Graves. If you are, 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 are moved by the film, or if you have a, a reaction to the film that somehow feels that you're suffering as damaged by the screening of Unquiet Grave, that's something that I can't get my head around. I, I didn't make Unquiet Grave to say this is the only story of the conflict. I'm telling you this is a story from where I came in the conflict, and there are many stories within the conflict. And when I set out to make Unquiet Graves, I was always sensitive that there are those within the other side of the community that have also suffered. I frame everything uh, within my own work. I frame it through the process of conflict transformation. And that's how I see it. And I'm always sensitive to those within the other side of the community. And there's nothing wrong with, 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 with one, one story from one part of the, the community doesn't undermine another story because there are many stories. That probably brings me to one of the other things I wanted to dive into, which was the concept of justice and how it means different things to different people um, and how that can complicate getting it because of that. Um, in the film, it's mentioned that some people want acknowledgement um, and others want, some people want acknowledgement and an apology and others want a day in court. Um, when you are, were talking to the families and offering them this uh lane or path were you thinking about the next steps for them the next steps for their their wish for justice be it through acknowledgement and apology or a day in court well uh, you, you, i mean you, you had mentioned it and i think i could well ever mention it to what when we're summing up the end of the film there there are many people that want money to and see justice as many uh, different things so it's 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 not the same for for every family but what I did do is I, say, I had said to the families that we are creating, what we're going to do is create a, a historical document that, that will always be there. Whether the criminal justice system eventually gets you the, the, the semblance of justice you want. Uh, besides that, 
we have these historical documents and your loved ones, the names of your loved ones and the story of your loved ones will always be there. And that's that's what I had said to the families and that's what we had hoped to do with On Quiet Graves. And I feel now vindicated uh, by, by what we have done. There was a man I mentioned in my introduction to this podcast, Steve Morris. He gives you testimony on camera about his time as an investigator in the historical inquiries team. He was a former detective and then came over to Northern Ireland to investigate these some of these killings. He is surprised at the level and the extent of the collusion that he is able to un- uncover. He says there's a smoking gun in the step-in attack of 1976. Um, that's when police officers were involved in the, the shooting of uh, innocent civilians. He is incredulous, really, that this hasn't kind of been put to bed already. Can you run us through exactly what has happened with the HET investigation and has there been any development since uh, the film was released last year? Well, what had happened with Steve Morris is that he had almost completed the overarching report and then it was stopped. Uh, for, for exactly whatever reasons, we are, we are not too sure, but we know that it was stopped. The, the big question is, why was it stopped? And Steve Morris has also asked this. Why was the overarching report on the Glen Arm gang stopped? That was a report that was going to kind of piece together all the threads of the 120 murders so that we would have a full picture of exactly what happened with this gang, how how they were set up, how they operated and what collusion there was. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, and fittingly, when when I had I'd brought the, I'd flew to England and I'd met Steve Morris and we had watched the film together, it was funny, you have to also remember that Steve Morris is the hero in, in this story, amongst others. This is a man who put himself out there. And we know what happens with, with policemen like that who put themselves out there. And, and, and one thing very poignantly that Steve Morris had said to me once we had watched the film, he, t- he had turned around and he had said to me, although they didn't publish the overarching report, in many ways, this film that the families have now is the overarching report in the absence of it. And that, that for me was... was also vindication that what we had done had done some justice to what the families needed. When it comes to, because you've talked a lot about, um, you know, this being one part of, this is being one story, but it's part of uh, troubles where a lot of stories, where does um, just being able to talk truthfully about it come into play? Like the idea of amnesties or being able to just tell what you did or what happened to you without there being roads um, to the criminal justice system. Um, where do you stand on that? Or do you stand out on it as a filmmaker? I, I just think it's a society was so polarised by, by, by many different things now, but legacy is the most polarising of all issues now, uh, uh, many years after the Good Friday Agreement. I think that was never ever uh, dealt with properly. We never ever had a proper truth commission. Uh, for unionists, it was something that they, they couldn't uh, take part in. British government also didn't want a truth commission because those those old skeleton, skeletons weren't allowed to come out of the cupboard. They didn't want the international community to see uh, what they had been involved in in the conflict in Ireland. Uh, it's too dirty. We're now seeing this through films like Unquiet Graves, No Stone Unturned, The Ballam Murphy President, and, and so on. Uh, and, and victims of state violence are taking these issues uh, into their own hands now. And we're seeing the the, the empowering voices that were marginalised for so many years beginning to be beginning to be heard through these films, and it's it's uh, it's definitely something that is 
has shirked the British government. It's also shirked the Irish government and the media in the south of Ireland also. And I think that they now need to start dealing with this and questions need to be asked about the, the role of the, the British government in, in, in Ireland. And what form could that take? What Will it be an overarching report or is there something else um, that could be done at this point? Well, of course, we, 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 the, the parties had agreed uh, issues around the, the, the Stormont House Agreement, and we had an oral history archive that was one of those uh, was one of those things that, that was to be implemented as part of the Stormont House Agreement. And of course, that is scrubbed. So, I, I think there needs to be a collective way forward in regards to storytelling. I think we need to build a mosaic of stories together. Whether you were affected by Republican violence, British violence, or whatever. We need to realize fundamentally as human beings that we all suffered together and that there is no monopoly on suffering. Uh, there's no monopoly of victim, victimhood, no matter what part of a society that you came from. And that we need to, to, to sit down and discuss a way forward uh, with regards to this. We've seen it in many other uh, countries around the world. Of course, the South African Truth Commission wasn't perfect, but it's much better than what's happening now with the legacy in, in the north of Ireland. We're becoming more polarised than ever. And we're seeing what some describe as this, this uh, battle of narratives now around the conflict. What are the next steps for the families of the victims of the Glenan gang? Well, again, it's one thing that I had said to the families when I had met them. This isn't just uh, a film. This is now a lobbying tool. Once this film is finished, it's now a lobbying tool for your campaign. So the film can be a lobbying tool for any any further uh, legal cases that need to be made. We have that historical archive that is on Quiet Graves, along with Anne Cadwallader's book, uh, Lethal Allies, and of course, uh, Margaret Irwin's uh, recently released book on, on, on Loyalist Death Squad. So these are historical ar- archives that are there forever, and they're now lobbying tools for family members to seek justice. One of the other things about the film I wanted to ask was the idea of like the one good person dilemma. Like you see uh, John Weir, you see Steve Morris, um, Anne Codwallader, as you mentioned there with her book. These are all people who are fighting against the establishment ideas of the time um, or the structures that they work with, within at the time, um, like Morris and Weir. Um, how much of what has been uncovered has been just mainly due to those people existing rather than anything actually um, being done on a more systemic level or through the correct, I guess, pathways of government or, or um, politics. Well, what, you know, sadly, what we have seen with, with the many years of research by these kinds of advocacy groups is that the British government have learned to uh, be more careful with, with the documents that, that, that they have. So we now see documents that are being heavily redacted since even the release of Unquiet Graves. So I think that period of trying to find information is becoming uh, smaller and smaller. I think that the, the, the British government are starting to get ahead of the game now. We've seen in the past that there, there's been fires, asbestos accidents, where many of these documents have went missing. Uh, and even when we find the documents now that they're heavily redacted for another 75 to 100 years. So there needs to be uh, a more, uh, a greater emphasis on, on having uh, the international community involved and pressurizing the British, gov- British government to release the files on, on the state killings. We, we need to have greater uh, international emphasis in this as, as soon as possible because there is no way that the British government is going to release that information. 
Does this go back to the theory that the British army and the British government ways of work is the same in Ireland and Northern Ireland as it is in all the other colonies, colonies over the years? Yeah, well, we've seen that pattern. And I think on Quackery's days and days in that a little bit when we're, we're speaking about the Moi Moi in Kenya, etc. Of course, the, the, the British government, uh, what they had learned in other uh, colonial projects, they had brought to Ireland, but that was also that was also taught to other uh, other countries around the world. Uh, just as recently as, as, as Sri Lanka, when we had seen up to uh, eighty thousand civilian civilians killed in the the, the, the Tamil attacks and the, the Sri Lankan war. So where, where the British government had supplied uh, uh, the, the weapons uh, to the Sri Lankan government, we also see it in Yemen. So it, it continues. And, and I think with the international uh, appeal that has been around Unquiet Graves, what these fellow, that what Unquiet Graves does is it just doesn't say about what the British government has been doing here in Ireland. It internationalizes it, it gives international context, and it also asks a present day question about what uh, Britain is doing all around the world. Um, and relatedly, Susan McKay in her review of um, Anne Caldwaller's, Caldwaller's book, she says that there is a lot ascribed to the British Army colonial ways, but maybe some of Northern Ireland's own unique set of circumstances um, aren't um, delved into enough. Would you say that is fair and that we do need to look at what the circumstances and the atmosphere in Northern Ireland was, as well as um, what the British Army's MO was. Of course, yeah. I, I think there's. I think we only we only know a fraction uh, of what we need to know. I, I think there there are there are many uh, areas of, of discussion that needs to take place. We we need to to fundamentally have those records opened, and whether that's done through a neutral arbiter. Whether it's done uh, with with members of the United Nations or or, or whatever else, who can look at these files and, and become an arbitrator in that process. But we need those files open. People need justice because these families are down out, and and they, and they need greater help from the Irish government and the international community. Yeah, that's always something that, that we talk about when there's a, a long fight for justice, that people eventually die um, and people eventually like get weighted out. Um, ha- has there been, obviously there there probably has been incidents of people who have been fighting this fight but have since passed away? Yes, when we, when we ended the film, there were, I think there were 11 family, extended mom, uh, family members that were killed and I think that's now up to 25. So, uh, and I see this, it's not just in the process of making unquiet careers, I see it right across my own communities here, those those that uh, are involved, or those that, that have been involved, or have been affected, sorry, by by the conflict. Uh, I, I've run a project, a voluntary project called the Witness Project now, where we're beginning to collate uh, the personal testimonies of people and there, there are a list of people that I know who've, who've been uh, arranged to see me to have their, their, their testimonies archived and they've died before we can get that process. So it's, it's happening very rapidly now. I mean, it's it's over 50 years now from, from the, the, the outbreak of the, the current uh, conflict. And I think it's, it, it's, it's exactly what the British government want to happen as people die now because they, we've seen it with the Moi Moi in Kenya and other areas in the Middle East where they, uh, they wanted to, to deny what had happened uh, and push the families uh, legally uh, and put as much uh, effort into the criminal justice system just the justice system and uh, obfuscating what had went on in the conflict until family members have died, you know. Is here, it's 50 years on, but 
is the this country able to handle this topic are we able to deal with it psychologically even physically would do we have the the ability to put the mechanisms in place to handle those processes that you've talked about well we do but i think the first step the first step is 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 realizing just as i had said earlier that we 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 have all suffered and that we are all responsible in many ways for what had happened we can't vilify the opposite side of the community and the Irish government has much responsibility in this as possible also uh, there ha there's context to everything that happened in the north of Ireland in the contemporary war from 1969 onwards it just didn't happen out of the blue it was many years of discrimination against the nicest community so what we need to do is realize that there was context we need to stop the blame game for a start we need to stop the blame game and we need to say you know my neighbor has suffered uh, your neighbour has suffered, we've all suffered together, and that we need to give these families, whether they were killed by Republican or Unionist violence, give these families some semblance of justice and, 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 and leave a legacy for our own children. That's the most important thing. We need to leave a legacy for our own children or we face the possibility of this reigniting again. I think um, your film on Quiet Graves definitely is, is part of that legacy and part of um, a, a teaching tool that a lot of people, for instance, mightn't even know that there was such a thing as the murder triangle um, in, in the 70s and 80s. So thank you so much for coming on today and, and going through all of that with us. And I would urge people again to have a look at Unquiet Graves. It's on RT, RT Player for the next, I think, 25 days. And it's also available on Vimeo.com. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, if you go to unquietgraves.com, there, there, there'll be a link to stream the film. As we mentioned there, the film Unquiet Graves ends on a Seamus Heaney poem and we're very grateful that Sean gave us permission to reproduce it here um, as it is heard on the film and we're going to play you out with that. Leaving the white glow of filling stations and a few lonely street lamps among fields, you climb the hills towards Newton Hamilton, past the fuse forest, out beneath the stars. Along that road, a high, bare pilgrim's track where Sweeney fled before the bloodied heads, goat beards and dogs' eyes in a demon pack blazing out of the ground, snapping and squealing. What blazed ahead of you? A faked roadblock. The red lamp swung, the sudden brakes and stalling engine, voices, heads hooded, and the cold-nosed gun. Or in your driving mirror, tailing headlights that pulled out suddenly and flagged you down where you weren't known and far from what you knew. The lowland clays and waters of Loch Peg, Church Island's spire, its soft tree line of you. There you once heard guns fired behind the house long before rising time when duck shooters haunted the marigolds and bulrushes but still were scared to find spent cartridges acrid, brassy, genital, ejected on your way across the strand to fetch the cows. For you and yours and yours and mine fought shy spoke an old language of conspirators and could not crack the whip or seize the day. 
big-voiced scullions, herders, feelers round haycocks and hindquarters, talkers and buyers, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. Across that strand of yours, the cattle graze up to their bellies in an early mist, and now they turn their unbewildered gaze to where we work our way through squeaking sedge, drowning in dew. Like a dull blade with its edge honed bright, Loch Beg half shines under the haze. I turn because the sweeping of your feet has stopped behind me to find you on your knees with blood and roadside muck in your hair and eyes. Then kneel in front of you in brimming grass and gather up cold handfuls of the dew to wash you, cousin. I dab you clean with moss, fine as the drizzle out of a low cloud. I lift you under your arms and lay you flat with rushes that shoot green again, I plait green scapulars to wear over your shroud. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Sean for appearing with us today. If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few months for you to support our journalism. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues have fallen drastically, but we are and want to keep providing you and the rest of our daily users with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you have felt it is important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and have contributed. A lot of you asked if there was a way you could give more regularly. We now have options for you to become a regular supporter. And if this is something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.